Uh, and as they make their way up, I want to invite you to open your copy of God's life-giving word to the book of Matthew. We're going to be in chapter 9 today, all right? Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. And uh, as you turn there, uh, I want to share just a few, uh, I'm not sure you could call them highlights from my week, but uh, I want to share a few uh, just circumstances from uh, my week that uh, I think you can put in the category of disruption. All right? Disruption. I don't know if anyone loves disruption. Uh, I am typically not a big fan of disruption. And it, it surfaced multiple times uh, through my week. I'm sure you had some experiences in your week this week where you experienced disruption. Uh, but here are just a few from my life. On Wednesday, uh, after wrapped up work and uh, said what's up to the kids, uh, my wife and I got to go drive to Nashua, New Hampshire at 5.15 to hang out with some other friends. And it just so happened that there was a lot of disruption on the road, right? There was traffic that was disrupting our flow. And I tend to be um, not the most patient driver in the world. I think there is uh, an argument for defensive driving. And I tend to lean toward the argument of offensive driving. You know, the, the best defense is sometimes a good offense. So it's like I want to drive a, just as fast as I can you know, um, but, 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 but the traffic was disruptive. Uh, and not only that, there was a couple of small fender benders. So you know how Waze is showing you the, the, the yellow to orange to red. You know, we had a few orange moments, even a little bit of red in there. So there was just some disruption. I'm like, hey, we got to text Chris. We're going to be a little late, da-da-da. So, so that was a disruptive experience. And then on Friday, uh, as I'm trying to finish up my work week serving the beautiful people known as Redemption Hill Church, uh, I get a text message from one of the representatives here at the high school that a pipe had broken here in the front of the building and that it was likely that we were going to not be able to meet in the theater this morning, but we were going to need to shift plans. So I experienced this disruptive message and I come to the high school, scout out the territory. I thought we were going to be worshiping in the cafeteria today. So we can thank God that we are, I mean, could be cool, but, you know, we're, we're in the theater today. But that was a disruption in my life. And then one more just to kind of take you all the way back to Monday, uh, MLK Day. Hope you celebrated and honored Dr. King. Uh, and so one of the things that we did with the kids being out of school, I took them to the Museum of Science. Have you been in the Museum of Science? I mean, just an awesome place. I mean, just to see the, the various exhibits there and the hands-on, you know, uh, offerings and exhibits that you can experience. Well, uh, we make it, we get into the parking garage, and all of the girls are piling out of our vehicle. I walk around, open Titus' door, and I say, Buddy, where are your shoes? <laughs> And he's looking at me like, weren't you supposed to put them on me when we left the house? And I'm like, dude, it's freezing. How did you walk outside without your shoes on? And it was a moment of disruption. I mean, I got to, you know, sometimes as pastors, we tell story on our kid, the, the low lights that are kind of funny, like for Titus. But I just want to give props to our three older daughters who had incredible attitudes and endured another 30 minutes in the car because Titus left his shoes at home. 
There were many disruptions in my week this week. But listen, there are times where we need God to bring what we could call a holy disruption in our life. These are times where God has maybe a different vision for what he wants to see in us and through us where he wants to disrupt our thinking and disrupt our patterns and practices to more readily reflect his heart in everything we do. And this is what we see in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is in the midst of his ministry and we see here a story of disruption. He wants to disrupt the thinking and the ways of the religious leaders through his radical love. Look at what it says here in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they lost their minds. That's not what the Bible says, but that's kind of what's going on here. The Pharisees saw this. They said to his disciples... Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This story can be summed up in the words of Luke chapter 7, verse 34, where it says, Jesus was a friend, a friend of sinners. And I want to ask you what may be a disruptive question here this morning. And that is quite simply, what about us? What, what about us? What about you? What about me? Would people make the same accusation of us that they did of Jesus? Hey, these people who seem to really love God spend way too much time with people who don't seem to love God. If I were to ask you, do you consistently spend, listen, quality time building relationships with people who are close to you but far from God, how would you answer? Perhaps some of you would say, well, Pastor Tanner, I actually spend a lot of time building relationships with people who are close to me but far from God. And listen, if that is you, then that is amazing. That is great. Keep it up. 
But I have a sneaky suspicion that for most of us in our church, and I don't think this is just Redemption Hill, I think this is an American church culture thing where uh, we just at times get so comfortable in our rhythms and, and what we might feel are our safer relationships that we would, most of us say, it's not a lot, it's probably a little, if almost any time at all. And so perhaps Jesus wants to disrupt the patterns and practices of our life today. And I know that may be a little difficult to hear, but here's what I love about Jesus. When Jesus disrupts something in our life, he does it with the intention to deliver something better. Amen? Have you experienced it? Jesus is saying, hey, that doesn't reflect who I am, but I want to disrupt that, but I want to deliver something better. And by the way, what he delivers here is actually very easy and very enjoyable. We see that Jesus says, if you want to build healthy relationships with people, all you have to do is eat with them. I mean, who finds eating easy? Raise your hand if you think, hey, eating, that's easy. Raise your hand. I can't see you, all right? If you, if you don't like, if you don't think eating is easy, um, I don't know what to say. I just don't know what to say. Um, and who finds eating enjoyable? Anyone find eating enjoyable? Okay, so easy, enjoyable. I, like, Jesus delivers a better plan. I mean, I love this. So, so. What we want to see as a church this year is this prayer that we're praying. We're learning to pray in Boston as in heaven. God, we want you to move in our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships to see your kingdom come and will be done in Boston as in heaven. But then we ask, well, how are we going to live this vision out in our everyday lives? And we said that we want to bring a blessing to the people around us to see God's kingdom come in Boston as in heaven. If you've been tracking the last two weeks, and even if you haven't, you're going to get it really quickly today. The, the simplicity of our vision just says, look, let's seek to bring a blessing. And the word bless is the operative word. How we're going to do this, as we saw last week, we're going to begin with prayer, and then we're going to listen to others Eat with them. You can say hang out with them. And then, as we'll talk about next week, we're going to serve them and we're going to share the love of God with them. But today we're going to focus in on these next two letters of listening and eating. And as we work our way through this story, I want to ask you three crucial questions about your life today. Okay, I'm asking you, your life today. Not your life the way that you want it to be. Not your life the way it was three or four years ago, pre-COVID and all of that stuff. Okay, I'm asking what is your life like today and what will it be like moving forward? The first crucial question is this. Who will you open your heart to with urgent love? Who will you open your heart to with urgent love? Verse 9 says that Jesus passed on from there. We know from verse 1 that he had come back across the Sea of Galilee to his home base of Capernaum. And it's likely that Jesus was probably walking uh, beyond the, the confines of the, the, the town of Capernaum uh, to the area where there would have been a major trade route where tax collectors gathered to collect taxes on the goods as they passed by. 
And so Jesus sees this man named Matthew. And what we know about Matthew is this Matthew is the same person who's called Levi in Mark chapter 2, who is also the author of this very gospel called Matthew. And it's interesting that he's writing in the third person here. He says that Jesus saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, which tells us that Matthew was a tax collector. Now, I don't know about you, but I know that I do not love taxes, all right? I just do not love, I mean, there might be a small, like the CPAs, the accountants, or whatever, oh, it's tax season, I can't wait, all right, but it's like, I do not, I, I do not love doing my taxes, and I actually despise doing my taxes almost as much as I despise paying my taxes, all right, but it's like, I just do not love anything about taxes, and you may have the same feelings as I do. But in the first century, it's one thing to say, hey, we don't really have a big fan of taxes, and Uncle Sam, he's pretty greedy, and what's up with all this? But, but in the first century, if you were part of the nation of Israel, and one of your fellow Jews, like Matthew, became a tax collector, you would have not only not loved taxes, but you would have despised Matthew. And here's why. Number one, Tax collectors were viewed as traitors. They were working for the Roman mercenaries who were oppressing the people of Israel. Number two, related to that, they were sellouts. All right? And I mean, I'm talking literally, they were sellouts because the Romans would bid out areas of jurisdiction to would-be tax collectors. And, and it's like, whoever has the highest bid, that is who is going to become the tax collector of this given area. Not only that, they were unjust thieves, consistently overcharging the poor to pad their pockets. It is likely that Matthew was very rich, if not filthy rich. And we know this not only because of his occupation, but as we saw here in verse 10, it says that many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus had more than a few disciples. There were more than a few tax collectors and sinners. So we saw last week that most ancient homes in Israel were just one room, small houses, and yet Matthew's house is packed out with people here. And so uh, we know that Matthew was likely very, very rich. He would have been probably balling in a four-story brick home in Beacon Hill if he lived in Boston. All right, just think about that. On top of that, their frequent interaction with Gentiles also exposed them to ritual defilement. So, so Jewish tradition held that a tax collector, if they entered your home, would render your home unclean. And then to sum it all up, the Talmud, a key historical writing of the Jews, lumps tax collectors, can you believe this, lumps tax collectors in with murderers and robbers. And you say, well, I don't read the Talmud, uh, Pastor Tanner, and, you know, uh, what has that got to do with me and the Bible? Well, just go to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse 17, where he speaks of tax collectors in the same breath as prostitutes and other sinful people. This is how tax collectors were viewed in ancient Israel. When everyone saw Matthew, they despised and ignored him, but not Jesus. 
Jesus sees Matthew, and rather than ignoring him, rather than despising him, he calls out his name. He calls out his name. He says, Matthew, son of Alphaeus, follow me. And I don't know if you've seen episode seven, seven of season one of The Chosen, all right, but I love this scene where Jesus calls to Matthew and Peter, who is a, also a new follower of Jesus, he, he says, which is, you know, pretty likely to have happened, hey, Jesus, whoa, 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 do you know who, who he is? Do you know what he has done? And Jesus simply answers, yes. You see, Jesus calls out to Matthew, and he invites him into a relationship. The, the, the one word here in the Greek that's translated follow me, it is in the present active imperative tense, all right, which means follow me and keep on following me. Jesus is offering an invitation to a life of experiencing who he is in all of his ways, which is what discipleship is all about. Discipleship is the very son of God pouring all of himself into all of us. As you think about discipleship, that's what it is. It is, it is what we receive from God, all of what we receive from God, we then take it and we pour it into other people. And this is what Jesus does here. In this moment of decision, Matthew gets out of his seat and he takes those first steps on the dusty roads of Capernaum and his life would be forever changed. He leaves his job. He leaves his lucrative income. He leaves his Roman connections, which would have protected him and given him access to all of the finer things in Capernaum. And the Gospel of Luke sums it up and says in chapter 5, verse 28, that Matthew left everything to follow him. Matthew had this opportunity because Jesus of Nazareth opened his heart to him. He didn't just walk by and keep walking, but he saw. And it asked, we should ask the question, what do we see? Who do we see as we move? I love you. Read the Gospels, and Jesus is just having interaction after interaction with individuals. He always had an eye for individuals. And as we follow Jesus and as we grow to be like Jesus, we will experience the same thing, that we'll start noticing the people that no one else notices, that we'll start caring about the people that no one else cares about. We must ask the question, who will we open our heart to with urgent love as we seek to live like our Savior? But then Jesus takes it a step further. He not only invites Matthew to follow him, but verse 10 tells us that he goes to his house and enjoys a banquet in Matthew's home. It says in verse 10, and Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. We know from the gospel of Luke that this was Matthew's home and it says that he was offering a great banquet there. And in Jesus' day, maybe you've heard this before, that, that sharing a meal was more than just saying, hey, I'm willing to associate with you, but it was a way of offering friendship. 
It was, it was saying that, hey, I am welcoming you into my social circle and I accept you into my life. So just imagine Jesus, the Son of God, he's, he's reclining, it says, uh, at table. The Roman custom, which was, uh, you know, practiced by the Jews at their festivals and at their banquets, there would have been uh, couches that were facing the table, and Jesus is laid back on them. And he's just having, listen, I love this about our God. Our God is just having a good time with other people. He's... I mean, I hope you have space for this in your framework of following Jesus, that he's telling stories. He's, he's laughing at their jokes. Perhaps he's telling a few himself. He's talking about how good the food is. He's just spending time loving the people around him. And I don't know about you, but the end of verse 10 makes my heart burn. It says that the house was packed. The house was packed. It says that many, many, many tax collectors and sinners were there surrounding the sinless Son of God. You say, well, who are these sinners that Matthew speaks of in verse 10? Likely these would have been people participating in flagrant sin, pimps, prostitutes, and thieves. Again, the people that the religious leaders would have ostracized and forgotten about but not our God. This was absolutely outrageous to these religious leaders. It says in verse 11, look at this, and when the Pharisees, that's the religious leaders of the day, uh, when they saw this, they said to Jesus' disciples, they don't ask Jesus directly, but they ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The NLT, I think, captures the force of this when it says, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message says this, what kind of example is this from your teacher? Acting cozy with crooks and misfits. They could not believe that Jesus would receive those they had rejected. You see, this question is not a curiosity question, but it is a question of condemnation. Why? Why? Doesn't he know who they are? Doesn't he know how bad and ungodly they are? Doesn't he know what kind of things that these filthy people do? And this clues us in, I love, it clues us into the custom of Jesus. I love, they, they ask the question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, think about this. It's not, hey, why is he eating with them right now? As if this is a one-time thing. This was apparently the custom of Jesus' life. And we know this by Luke chapter 7 when people had characterized, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, right? And he's saying, hey, you think he's crazy? He's out in the wilderness. He's fasting. He's eating honey and locusts. And you're saying that dude is wild and crazy. No one wants to go out and have fun with him because he's not having any fun. And then he says this, you, you religious leaders, you want nothing to do with John the Baptist, but you want nothing to do with me because you're like children playing in the streets saying, we sang a dirge for you and you did not mourn. That's a funeral song. 
So he's comparing John the Baptist with a funeral. And he's saying, you want nothing to do with John. But when we sing a song of celebration, you won't dance either. And he's saying, you say that I, Jesus, the Son of God, am a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That, that, um, that this is what characterized his ministry. And so this offends the mess out of these Pharisees. They could not wrap their minds around his scandalous generosity. Which leads us to ask a second question here this morning. Not only who will we open our heart to with urgent love, but who will we open our homes to with joyful generosity? Who will you open your home to with joyful generosity? generosity. Now, here's a question. Who is opening their home in this story? This is, this is not a quite trick question, by the way. Who is, who is opening their home? It's Matthew, right? It's Matthew's house. He's the one that's opening his home. But if we ask a second, more interesting question, who in the story is practicing joyful hospitality? And I hope your conclusion is certainly Matthew is implied, but Jesus is the focus, right? Jesus is the one who is actively loving the people. He is the one who is being charged as being a friend of these filthy people. And so what is hospitality? Well, when you, you hear the word hospitality, you hear our word hospital, right? I don't know if you ever thought about that, but, but a hospital is what? It's a place where people are welcomed in to be cared for and served. The word hospitality in the Greek, it, it comes from, from two words that are put together that, that means love and strangers. Philo, love, xenia, strangers. It's literally the love of strangers. And so hospitality is extending kindness through offering a welcoming environment and a heart of service. I love what Scott Kermode says about hospitality. He says, hospitality is treating outsiders like insiders, just as God has treated us. We see that Romans 12, 13 says to seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9 says to seek to show hospitality without grumbling. And, and Hebrews 13, 2 is particularly exciting to me when it says this, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers, for some have done this, have entertained angels without realizing it. Wow. Hospitality is creating a welcoming environment for people to enjoy the goodness of God's creation. And so as you think about opening your home, listen, and what I love, don't miss this, by the way, what I love about both Matthew and Jesus offering joyful hospitality is this. You don't have to open your home to be hospitable. I mean, it's really great to open your home because it's a, a, just a, a way of, 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 you know, really communicating friendship and openness. If you're willing to open your home to someone, it's a, it communicates that you're willing to open your life to them, that you're willing to let them see behind the curtain of maybe what they wouldn't see otherwise. And yet, I would argue the most hospitable person in the room is not Matthew, but it's Jesus. 
And so don't just think, I know we're saying, who will you open your home to with joyful hospitality, but, but it can be anywhere, any environment, someone else's home where you are practicing hospitality, welcoming other people in, or even across a lunch table in the cafeteria or workplace, wherever. And I was studying this week, I, I came across an article by Jen Wilkin, and it's super helpful what she, she does when she contrasts hospitality with entertaining. We live in an entertainment culture, and sometimes when we welcome people in, more than practicing joyful hospitality, we're really doing more of entertaining. And this is how she describes it. She says, hospitality allows the gathering to be shaped by the quality of the conversation rather than the cuisine. Hospitality shows interest in the thoughts, feelings, pursuits, and preferences of its guests. It is good at asking questions and listening intently to answers. Hospitality focuses attention on others. Entertaining is always thinking about the next course, Hospitality burns the bread because it was listening to the story. Entertaining obsesses over what went wrong. Hospitality savors what is shared. Entertaining, exhausted, says, it was nothing, really. Hospitality says, it was nothing, really. Entertaining seeks to impress. Hospitality, thank you, Jen Wilkins, seeks to... Bless, that's right. <laughs> you tracking with me? You didn't like that? That's our whole vision this year. Can I get a smile? Can I get an amen? All right. So, so we, we want to bless, right? We want to we bless others through our hospitality. And so, yes, Matthew is a gracious host, but Jesus is singled out as making these people, even strangers, feel welcomed, offering his friendship. And so what I want to do is this. I want to really challenge us as a church. Because again, if you're, I want to be, let me be honest and transparent today. Okay, I need my heart disrupted by this story. I just, I do. And this was, this was true to a degree. Marsha, I've talked a lot about this, okay, uh, in our life, in our home. Even before COVID, I think we have slipped in terms of really welcoming people into our home consistently. Not just the people we love of Redemption Hill Church, which we do pretty frequently, but especially those who are close to us but far from God. And so let me show you a resource that comes from the book that we shared with you last week that we're giving away today called Blessed by John and Dave Ferguson. In their chapter on eating, they have what is called a meal calendar, all right? And you don't have to see this twice. You don't have to write it down to understand it. But it just has, right, you see, you're going to eat, right, either breakfast, lunch, dinner, or drink some coffee, or probably all of the above every single day. And they say, okay, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, out of these seven days with these 28 boxes of opportunity where you're already spending the time and you don't have to add something to your week because you're busy Bostonians, they say, just put a check in one box. Just one box this week. Hey, I'm going to, Tuesday, I'm going to invite a coworker to, to, to lunch. Or, or Thursday, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see if I can just take my coffee break and, and bring a cup to the person in the cubicle beside me. 
Or maybe, you know, Wednesday night we can have that, that couple or that family over for dinner. Or maybe Saturday morning we, we do a little dessert or maybe it's, I, I would go for some pizza and wings while watching the Celtics. I mean, you guys already know that. But it's like, there are just all kinds of opportunities, right? And I love this. We don't, we don't have to add stuff to our schedule. We can just be intentional with the time that God has given us. So the question I want to ask you today is who will you share a meal with this week? This week. And I don't, I mean, one of my fears as a pastor, and just be, just be super, super real and honest, okay? How many, uh, let me just put it very practically. Uh, we talked about the Lord's Prayer, uh, praying the Lord's Prayer. Out, outside of community group, I'm curious, how many of us like took that prayer and prayed it this week? And maybe a lot, maybe a lot of you did, right? And I'm, I can be as guilty as you, right? Like we come into a sermon, we hear it, and then we keep going about our life as if we didn't hear anything on the, the Sunday before. Rather than saying, okay, God, if, if this is true and this is what it looks like to experience your life and your blessing as we follow Jesus, then what is one action that I can take this week to reflect your heart in what I'm up to on the everyday? And so I just really like the, the temptation for me, I tend to be, even though on Sunday, you know, I'm kind of, sometimes I'm prophetic and I'm high truth, all right? Most of the time, if you're hanging out with me, I really err, I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I err on the side of grace and kind of step back on the side of truth at times. Yeah, I see some heads nodding, okay, if you know me. So, so, so I don't want to do that right now because, because what the temptation is, man, press, press a little harder here and, you know, it's like, no, this is the challenge. Decide right now. Decide by the end of the day. Decide like this week because if, if I don't challenge you to do this this week, there's a strong likelihood that the week after, it's probably not going to happen. So I really want to challenge you. Really want to challenge you. Decide before the end of the day who you will share a meal with this week. Because what, what Jesus says here, as he teaches the, the Pharisees, and I love this, he says, look, you may not want to invite them in, but this is why I came. This is why I came. This is why I'm here. I was sent to love people that no one else is going to love. Amen. So the third question I want to ask this morning is this. Who will you extend mercy to with conviction and purpose? Who will you extend mercy to with conviction and purpose? And God, we just ask right now that you would begin to bring people to mind, coworkers and neighbors and friends, Lord, who need to know of your love, who we care about, who we would actually enjoy spending some time with and getting to know. Who is it that we will extend your mercy to? What we see here is Jesus, I love this, Jesus is listening, all right? I'm not giving you a ton on listening here today, all right? But we see that Jesus is listening. It's not only implied as he's reclining at table and hanging out with everyone and having a good time, but he overhears this question from the Pharisees, why does your teacher eat with these people? And so Jesus was 
full of grace, but he was also, thank you, help me, Jesus, full of truth. And so he provides an answer that is loaded with conviction. Look, look at what he says here. In verse 12, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Again, the message says this. Jesus overhearing shot back, Who needs a doctor? The healthy or the sick? This was his conviction. In other words, this was his firm belief. Listen, the church, and I know this might offend some of your sensibilities at times, okay? It's not an either or, but just think about what I'm saying. The church is not a holy huddle. It's just not. We're not a holy huddle. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't huddle up and care for one another and live like family and know what's up with one another. We build relationships in the Redemption Hill family. Absolutely. That's why I hope if you haven't already jumped into a group on Tuesday or Wednesday night that you'll jump into a group. It's good to huddle up. It's good to care for one another. But we are a family. We are a family, not a holy huddle. We are a family that's on a mission to make Jesus known. That's, that's who we are. That's who we are at our essence. We are not a holy huddle, but we are a hospital for the sick, a place to offer God's healing remedy for the brokenness of our sin. And what Jesus implies here, maybe you've heard him called this before, Jesus is the great physician. He is the balm in Gilead that Jeremiah speaks of. He is the son of righteousness with healing in his wings, Malachi chapter 4. And Jesus is saying, look, everyone needs my healing touch. Everyone needs my healing touch. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever been around a stubborn, sick person, but it is kind of maddening at times. Have you, have you ever been around a stubborn Sick person before, hey, you don't look like you're feeling well. I feel great. Well, I know you just like said, ouch, but maybe you could use some Tylenol. No, I'm good, right? You're just like, I'm not going to name names, but I have some stubborn sick people in my life right now. And it's like, I'm just trying to help and just try to see you get healed up and feel better. But listen, we can, we can all be stubborn sick people, Right? And so Jesus here, don't get it twisted. Jesus is using sarcasm when he says, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. The NLT tr translates the meaning for us when, when it says this, I have not come to call those who, listen, think they are righteous. The religious leaders thought they were righteous. They thought that they had it all together, that they didn't need God's loving grace. And so Jesus is saying, look, I am communicating my message and truth to the people who were humble enough to say, I am sick and I need some help. So he says, the sick need a doctor. And then I love, I love what Jesus does again. He's, he's full of grace. He's full of truth. He gives the Bible scholars a Bible homework assignment. Look at this. What, what, is he, what does he say uh, in verse 13? He, he instructs them, go and learn, right? Like go do some study. Read until you understand, we could say, what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And what is Jesus doing here? 
He's quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where Hosea communicates the word of God where God says, I desire. This is what God desires. You want to know what's on God's heart? It is seeing mercy extended to everyone, every hurting and broken person. This is what he wants. And the problem in Hosea's day was that like the Pharisees, the people looked super religious. They showed up on Sundays. They sang the songs. They prayed the prayers. They did the stuff. They sacrificed animal after animal according to the customs of the law, but the heart of the law about mercy and steadfast love, they left behind. And Jesus is saying, you're just just like them. You talk a good game. You even look like you're in step with me, but in your heart, you're rejecting these people that I absolutely am crazy about, and you need to get on board with my Mercy and grace. The Hebrew word here for mercy is kesed. You've heard it many times before. It means steadfast love, mercy, loving kindness. This is what's on the heart of God. And Jesus even says again, he says, look, this this is my purpose. This is my mission. What does he say at the end of verse 13? For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So I want to ask us one more time today. Does does your mission align with the mission of Christ? Do you see people like Jesus sees them? Because when Jesus saw people, look, and this is is the call today. Jesus, and God help us do it. Jesus saw past a person's present condition to their future potential. I want to say that one more time. Jesus saw past a person's present condition to their future potential. In other words, not the sinner that they are today, of which we are all sinners, but who he can make them to be. Most people saw their sickness. Jesus saw their healing. Most people called for their judgment. Jesus called for mercy. Most people ignored them. Jesus invited them in. And so what I want to call us to as we wrap this story up is this. To share a meal and extend mercy by seeing potential in people, not their problems. When everyone else looked at Matthew, they saw problems. He works for Rome. He robs people. He's he's doing people dirty left and right. We want nothing to do with him. And listen, let's not not be super spiritual. Let's not act like this doesn't apply to us, okay? There are people in our workplace. There are people in our neighborhoods. When we think about them, we think they would never want anything to do with God's love. Have you seen their post on Instagram? If you only heard the way they talk about You fill in the blank. The sick need a doctor. And we know the remedy. And so last week we we challenged just with, with, with so much simplicity that we can't necessarily get to know 5 million people in greater Boston, but we can really know and pursue and love and pray for three people 
And so, so have you written those, like again, have you written those names down? Like have you started to really pray? Because listen, we all love the idea of living like Jesus, right? Let's just keep it real. We all love the idea of actually praying for people. But I'm going to come back to this next week. It's already my notes for next week, okay? What we need in the church, what Pastor Tanner needs is to turn intentions into convictions. Intentions are like, hey, this is nice. This is a really good idea. I would like to do X, Y, Z, pray, have people in my home, all of these things. But when it flows like Jesus from the place of conviction, this is what I believe so deeply, that I am going to make this a priority in my life. Which, by the way, if something is a priority, then that means it gets on your calendar and you have a process to move forward in that so that you can actually make progress in that thing that you have prioritized. You tracking with me? God, I prioritize prayer. That's great. When are you going to pray? God, I really want to love people like Jesus I want to extend mercy to the people around me. Okay, do you have a box checked yet? This is what we're invited into as we see the heart of Christ. And so listen, I, I know that many things can stop us. Many, many different factors. But, but listen to what's going to motivate us. Listen to what's going to motivate. I, I know you, like you can't say you don't get hungry, right? <laughs> you can't say you're not going to eat. You can't say that you don't have time to eat. You can't even say you don't know where to start. It's just so simple. And just start with those three, one of those three people. That's where to start. But, but what's going to motivate us? Listen, what's going to motivate us in this? is what should motivate everything in our lives as we seek to follow Jesus. We come back to the heart of God. God is the ultimate host. God is the most gracious host. He is the one. Can you believe it? I hope you haven't gotten over it yet, that he invited your filthy self and my no-good scummy self <laughs> to his table. And this is why David in Psalm 23 says that, God, you have prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You've loaded it up with the richest of food. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup is overflowing. God is the most gracious host. And if you need just a little bit more, we look to the cross of Christ where Jesus stretches out his arms in the posture of welcome. And he dies in our place that the invitation would be forever good and forever secure for us to sit at God's table forever. This is why that should motivate us this week. As we walk with Jesus and say, God, I want to walk in your ways. I want to welcome people and love them as you have welcomed and loved me. You've held nothing back, God. Help me to hold nothing back from the people around me. And so what I want to do is I just want to wrap up our time in a few moments of prayer and, and just begin to ask God, if you're not already doing this, it's cool to pray, by the way, when the preacher's preaching, um, to just, God, who is it in my life? 
God, God, what's maybe the time slot that's just accessible where it's, you know, 30 minutes before work, a 15-minute coffee break, a, oh, this is a good night to just enjoy a meal out or have someone in. God, would you begin to show us? Just pray that right now. And so, Father, we ask, God, we ask that you would disrupt our souls to the point of bringing a conviction that this is the path of life, that this is not just a good idea, that we're not pulling out examples from Bible stories just because we want to appear to be religious. No, God, we are saying this is your heart. And God, we want our heart to align with your heart. And so make us full of mercy. God, make us full of, of compassion and kindness. God, I got to say there are some people on my heart that I'm praying for, but God, I fully expect that this week or in the next couple of weeks, God, you're going to introduce me to someone that seems on the surface difficult to love and that in my heart of hearts, I'm going to probably be resistant and hesitant to even say anything to them, much less say, hey, would you have a seat at my table? one person saying, I want to be more like Christ. I want to be more like Christ. I don't want to live another decade. And people wonder if people who don't yet love you love me and I love them. So God, would you move us out with more than intentions God, would you move us out with convictions that are ready to make decisions based on those convictions to love people and to bring a blessing to them in your name. We pray through the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.